We've got some new people here. Welcome to, to Calvary Chapel, Perth. And uh, we hope you um, get something out of the service. The fellowship's wonderful. The coffee's better. And we're... Um, <laughs> And so um, we're, we're actually uh, studying uh, 1 John, and, and we're going to concentrate on, on the first chapter today. We, did, we got up to verse 5 last time, and a number of people came up to me afterwards and said I had never seen or understood um, the Hebrew language in the way that it was presented last time. And so what I want to do is, we've done some screenshots to help you out. What I want to, to do first is have a screenshot of the actual contrasts that are in 1 John, so that we can see and understand. Um, have you got the contrast? Love and hate? No, the one before that. The one that, um, if we haven't got it, it doesn't matter. Okay, the, the, the contrasts are um, um, light and darkness, uh, the children of God versus the children of, of the devil and the uh, contrasts are also between uh, love and hate and, and death and life. And so what we're looking at, and they're extreme contrasts, extreme contrasts. And as I said last week, John is held by um, commentators to be an absolutist. We're going through Corinthians on our Wednesday night Bible study at home. And, and Paul is trying to get people whose witness... Uh, for the gospel in Corinth is, is pretty terrible. And so he's trying to lift them up out of that um, um, position and trying to get them to represent Christ properly. But here John, uh, John uh, at the very end of his life, at the very end of the um, first century, is trying to s establish the bar that, that God uh, uh, set for, for Christian uh, witness, uh, but he still allows for human failing. And last week we had the, um, the difference between uh, light and dark. And if you can bring that up, um, Eric, dear, thanks. So there, there are two words in, in Hebrew, or and hoshek, and they stand for light and darkness. And the problem that most people from a Western um, background don't understand is that Hebrew words have meanings, their letters have meanings, and they also have numerical values. And one of the things that's absolutely fascinating is that when we look at um, um, light and darkness, we're not talking about light. We're not talking about um, daylight and, and nighttime. What we're talking about is spiritual, and it's between um, divine um, um, love and revelation and the works of the enemy that try and, and smother that. And so we have in Genesis chapter 1, uh, verses uh, 1 to 5, if you want to turn, it in, turn in your Bible to 1 to 5, and we will actually see the contrast here. It's absolutely fascinating. So in Genesis chapter 1, we have this, this incredible um, statement. And one of the things that, that absolutely amazes me is I was listening to Dennis Prager the other day with... Um, with Jack Hibbs. Does anyone catch that as well? It was absolutely brilliant. Um, how that man can't see Jesus, it, it's just the most frustrating thing of all. He's such a wonderful person. He's an erudite uh, biblical scholar. He has uh, reason and love, and he's got so many Christian friends, but he just can't see Jesus in the scriptures, and it's so frustrating. But in the beginning, in verse 1, 
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then God said, and this is before Adam ever um, came on the scene, God had language and he communicated to um, the world and to his creation. And then God said, let there be light. Now the contrast between those two is, is what we're looking at in the contrast right throughout the Bible. One of the major sub-themes of the Bible is the conflict between light and darkness, good and evil, righteousness and unrighteousness. And it's a, it's a theme that is really powerful and comes through in virtually every book. And even in the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, there's this constant uh, reference to lightness and darkness. And uh, we go back to this thing that we have here. And light is associated with goodness and righteousness, cheerfulness, happiness, healing, salvation, joy, and life. If you look at um, any uh, commentary on the Hebrew uh, in the Bible, they will have that these words are associated with light. Darkness, hoshek, is associated with evil, judgment, sorrow, destruction, wickedness, and death. And what fascinated me when I first started studying the Bible decades ago is how come darkness was there first? Because when God created the heavens and the earth, um, there is no doubt that even when he created Evan, uh, Adam, he created Adam perfectly. He created the universe perfectly. There is no understanding from my point of view why he would create it uh, in a way that had darkness coming first. And I've heard certain commentators say things, well, it was just a blank canvas. No, that's not what darkness means in the Hebrew. It means those things there. And the thing that really comes through is that there is conflict here. And I'm not going to go into the, into the um, space between Genesis 1.1 and 1.2. If you're any kind of uh, student of the Bible, you know that there's been a raging con uh, controversy for decades, if not um, a couple of centuries, about what happened between Genesis 1.1 and Genesis 1.2. And um, uh, something must have happened um, because it's... it's it's not the way that God does things that he would create this situation where darkness is first and then the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters of the earth and we see that God in verse 3 says, then let there be light. So then let there be goodness and righteousness and cheerfulness and happiness and healing and salvation, joy and life in contrast to what seems to be there. And the old... The, it's just um, so frustrating when we try and understand as we're reading in the English the depth and the power that is in the, the Hebrew language. You know, when I was um, probably 30, 40 years ago, when I was 30 years ago when we were first introduced to Chuck Missler, that man's mind was absolutely fascinating and he had um, contacts within NASA and all the rest of it and I don't know how many of you remember but quite some time ago, um, NASA sent a capsule-type um, um, entity out into the universe. They set it on a trajectory that it would just keep going and going and going until 
they thought someone might find it and someone might intercept it and someone might um, land it and open it up because in that capsule they had uh, artefacts of life on earth, paintings and photographs and, and various um, odds and sods that uh, represented humanity. But they also had a statement written down in that capsule. And guess what language NASA chose to write that statement? Hebrew. Why? Because it's a conceptual language. It, has, it brings about uh, pictures and imagery and meanings and understandings that um, Koine Greek, the, the language of the New Testament, doesn't provide uh, in, in any comparison. But what the Koine Greek in the New Testament um, provides with us is precision in, in the explanation. And that is why God got Alexander the Great, after he took over from his father, um, um, Philip of Macedon, and he, and he coalesced the four different states within uh, Greece, and he brought them together under one kingdom, under Alexander. And when he was giving his orders to his generals to see how his, his army was believing, he observed that his generals had to translate what Alexander said into four different languages and then pass them on to their soldiers. And Alexander thought, this is never going to work. We're never going to win battles. We're never going to um, overcome the enemy. So Alexander, the genius that he was, developed the Koine Greek language. And that's the most precise, militarily and scientifically precise language that we've ever had on the earth. And Alexander can't take credit for that because God knew that he wanted that language for the spread of the gospel during the New Testament period. And so he brought about... Um, the, the Greek Empire, and it, it extended basically from, um, from Greece all the way to northern India, and they Hellenized their, that whole area so that Greek became almost the lingua franca, the basic language of that entire kingdom. And it was that that Paul used to give us the Pauline doctrines that explain our privilege to be Christians in this age. But Hebrew... Hebrew still stands alone as being a descriptive language par, par none. It is just so amazing. And I want you to actually have a look at um, a couple of screenshots. I want, I'm going to put up the alphabet now for the Hebrew alphabet to notice something. It's not only descriptive, but it is also numerical. And the first 10 letters of the Hebrew um, language go from 1 to 10. The second 10 letters go from 20 to 100. Do you understand? And the last ones go to 200, 300 and 400. And when you work things out like that, when you understand that, then, then fascinating things within the, the scriptures then start to make sense. And I want to... You've seen Or and you've seen Hoshek, but I want to do something now that's actually quite, quite amazing. I want to, to bring up the word Shalom. That's Aleph. We've got the other one there. Shalom. What does Shalom mean? Peace. 
It is shalom, meaning peace. And there should be, this is what happens in modern Hebrew. You get these vowel modifiers, and we have shin, lamet, yod, mem in those letters. But there should be an aleph in between the shin and the lamet, but it's inferred there by that little um, T underneath the shin. And it's inferred in there because Hebrew words are built uh, and language is built around three consonants and then they add prefixes and suffixes around it. But I want you to have a look at that word shalom. It's absolutely brilliant. I've done this with you, some of you, before. But shalom means peace. So how do you get peace? By overcoming chaos. Would that be a fair supposition? that you, you, you derive at a peaceful arrangement by overcoming conflict and, and chaos. So here we have shin, and we know that it's shin shish because that little dot is on the right-hand uh, part of the, the letter. If it was on the other one, then it would be an is sound for sin, for instance, but this is sh for, sh for shalom. And, you know, when I was staring at the, uh, at the uh, word shin, I thought... The meaning of this letter is all authority or total authority. And it goes with the other letters to make up the word peace. And I was looking at that. And if any of you are aware of a Jewish menorah, you've seen it, you picture it in your mind, you have seven little lampstands, right? The center one should be raised. The six represent man. The center one, the seventh, represents the Messiah or God because it's coming together and that is the witness of God to the world in the menorah. And I was looking at the shin and I'm thinking, why only three? And when I was looking at it, this is my thesis. I'm sure Jean will discuss this with me at length afterwards. <laughs> but to me, that's almost a divine menorah. Why? because there's three branches, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that's where our total authority comes from and stems from. So total authority, there should also be an Aleph in there, but it's inferred. Um, can we see the uh, Aleph? Thanks, Eric. There's your Aleph that is inferred by that uh, um, uh, modifier underneath the shin. And this is the first letter in the alphabet. And if you have a close look at it, all power, all authority in the shin, and if the Aleph was there, Jesus says, all power and authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Is that correct? In heaven and on earth. Look at the Aleph. There is a dividing line between the two, and in Genesis it says, the expanse, this is a wild day, um, the expanse is divided, the heavens and the earth are divided by an expanse. That part of the Aleph represents the expanse. On the right hand side you've got heaven, and on the left hand side you've got earth, divided by the expanse. All heaven, all, sorry, all authority in heaven and on earth, and then you get the Lamech. Can we go back to the word shalom, please, um, Eric? Then you had the Lamech, the L. What does it look like? 
Does it look like to you, when I'm writing them in, my, uh, in freehand, it actually looks like, and I've heard some commenters say this, it looks like a waterfall. Why? Because it's bringing stuff from the top down to the bottom. Can you see that in the, in the actual design of the letter? Total authority in heaven and earth to pull down, and then Yod, and then Mem, that which is associated, and now we have Mem. Mem is an amazing letter. If you know Jewish people, and we've been working them, with them for 25 years, they never ever use the word Satan, and they never use the word devil. They won't go there. But their term for that is the voice of chaos or the voice of calamity. All right? And that's what MEM stands for, calamity or chaos. So look at the word shalom, all authority in heaven and on earth to pull down that which is associated with the voice of chaos. That's how you get peace. That's where peace comes from. And that's the, the, the absolute power that is in the Hebrew language to convey concepts that we don't understand in, in Western English. And, you know, there are some verses that um, I want to, to uh, look at because Jesus uses this term twice and Paul uses it a third time. So can we have the verses, please, Eric? No, John, um, oh, oh yeah. Next one, can we have John um, 14, 27, please? That's it. This is Jesus speaking to the disciples in the upper room. That is one of the most personal, passionate discussions in the Bible where he's telling them he's about to leave them. And John, uh, Pete, Jesus says this to the disciples, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives to you, do I give to you. Let, your, let not your heart be troubled and neither let it be afraid. So Jesus is leaving with him, them his peace. What does he mean by peace? It means he's leaving them his authority in heaven and on earth because binding and loosing comes later in heaven and in earth, to pull down the effects of the devil. And that's what Paul is emphasising in Ephesians chapter 6. Can we have the um, other um, John one? Sorry, Luke 19 one. 41. This is when Jesus, this is the, one of the saddest verses in the Bible, passages in the Bible, when Jesus is riding the donkey over the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem for the last time and he knows he's going to the cross. And 41 to 43, now as he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, if you had known, even you, you Jewish people, especially in this your day, what does he mean by that? In Daniel chapter 9, um, Gabriel gave Daniel a precise calculation when the Jewish people could have worked out when their Messiah would have arrived and it also would have been Zechariah 9.9 that he would have been riding on a donkey. It is so much fulfilment of prophecy that I cannot understand how the Jewish people didn't see 
this prophecy coming to pass and Jesus riding in on that day. And for those who are technical, uh, in uh, Daniel chapter 9, um, the, the 483 years from the going out of a decree to rebuild Jerusalem on March 14th, 445 BC, to the day that Jesus walked, rode into, the, uh, into Jerusalem on the donkey was actually 173,880 days. And there are people who were aware of that. At the start of Luke, do you remember when um, Mary and Joseph took the baby Jesus into the temple to be de dedicated after 40 days? There were two people there in the temple. Can you, do you know who they are? Waiting. Simeon was waiting in the temple because there's a godly Bible-reading, Bible-believing, Tanakh-reading Jew. He knew that it was time for Messiah to come. And when he took that baby in his arms, he gave the most amazing prophecy. And he also said to Mary, a sword is going to pierce your heart, for he will be for the rising and the falling of Israel. And so... They should have known on this particular day when Jesus was riding into Jerusalem on the donkey, 173,880 days after the um, going out of the command to rebuild Jerusalem, he sh they should have known. And he said, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace. If they had have accepted him as their Messiah, they would have had their kingdom. Well, would Jesus have died? Yes, he would. If he'd been arrested by the Romans for sedition, he would have been crucified and he would have risen three days later and he would have established the kingdom. It was prophesied that that wouldn't happen in Isaiah 53. But if that had happened, where would we be? We wouldn't be. So the fulfilment of prophecy guaranteed that there would be an entity coming upon the scene called the church. And boy, I'm so pleased that that prophecy is being fulfilled. Because there's something about us in the church that is quite different from every other group of believers in the, in the scriptures. But Jesus said, because you did not recognize this your day, and the things that make for your peace, your authority to tear down your opposition, he said, they're now hidden from your eyes. And they have been hidden from the Jewish eyes for the last 2,000 years. What a tragedy. What an utter tragedy. And yes, we know that lots of people like Amir Safadi and the rest of it have come to saving faith over the last 2,000 years in Jesus but I was listening to him um, maybe a couple of months ago and he gave an answer to someone, how many believing Jews are in um, Israel at the moment? And he said half a percent. Half a percent. So probably 35,000 can see Jesus as the Messiah and the rest of them just can't see him. And you know what? I was listening to a Jewish evangelist who works in Israel with Jewish people and he said, whenever you put it to them, why can't you see Jesus as your Messiah? They respond with this, if he was the Messiah, where's our peace? 
where's our peace? Look at the last 2,000 years. We've been hunted, we've been attacked, we've been uh, exiled, we've been banished, we've been everything that you can imagine. So if Jesus was the Messiah, where's our peace? And that's the power behind um, even words like shalom. And so when we get to um, um, the rest of the verses, we um, go back to 1 John um, um, verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 5, please, because we go back to that. I want to go back to that um, powerful uh, verse in verse 5, which is, this is the message John is writing to not only the church at Ephesus where he was based, but to all of the churches around in, um, in uh, Asia Minor that he was the elder for. And lots of, apparently, according to the fathers, a lot of the um, officials from other churches would come and see John in Ephesus in the last years of his life. And John is saying in verse 5, this is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. That's the difference that we have in that stark contrast at the start of Genesis chapter 1. There is a, a, a division that cannot be crossed between light and darkness. There is an understanding that if we walk in the light, how do we walk in the light? We walk in being born again, regenerated, washed by the Holy Spirit. We put our faith, trust and belief in Jesus Christ, what he did on the cross for us, his death, his burial and his resurrection. And therefore, when we are indwelt by God, the Holy Spirit, we are commanded and exhorted and encouraged to walk in the light. And you know what? This morning when my wife was making um, your scones that you're going to get um, this afternoon, she came to me excitedly. And we know what's been happening in America over the last six to eight months, right? It's just total darkness. There's riots, there's um, mayhem, there's violence, all the rest of it. It is so dark that Sue came rushing to me and she said, look at what's happening on the phone. Well, look at what's happening on the phone. Without ever being told by our mainstream media, there are tens of thousands of young American Christians meeting outside and rallying throughout cities in America, and it's under the banner of let us worship. Let us worship. And it's just spreading like fire around America. Do we see that on the mainstream media? You can go and see Sue's got three videos on YouTube of these thousands of people in all of the cities where the riots have been, there's young people saying out in the streets, let us worship. Let us come to our God. Let us glorify him. We're not any danger to anyone except the darkness because they're walking in light and the light dispels the darkness. And you know what? I always understand this. When the darkness is coming like a flood, that's when the light shines brighter. And that's what is our responsibility at this time. We don't need to fear what's happening around the world at the moment. Because we have that authority through our prayer and our intercession, 
to pull down strongholds, to pull down the powers in dark places in, in, in the heavens, to stop this madness. And I don't know what's going to happen on November the 3rd in America in the election. I really don't know what's going to happen. And I talk to Christians about this, and they tell me it'd be great if Donald Trump won. And I, I would be the first to, to, to pump my fist. But do you want another four years of this chaos and this mayhem and all the rest of it? I mean, now that we've got our brand spanking new um, granddaughter uh, that's now two weeks old, two and a half weeks old, and Cheryl's just had her great-grandson, um, in my heart of hearts as a granddad, I'd love her to have a wonderful life. I really would. I would love her... I, my wife and I and people of my uh, age group born in the mid-50s had a wonderful childhood and a wonderful time growing up and the world was predictive, uh, predictive and, and relatively safe and all the rest of it, but it's just fallen off the cliff in the last few decades. And what really worries me is what kind of world is our beautiful little granddaughter going to grow up in? And... Um, you know, the one thing that I rest in is that God knows. God is totally aware from before the foundation of the earth that all of these things would happen, and he's in control. And, you know, I sent some, um, some sicklingly sweet photographs of me holding my beautiful little daughter to some, some, some people in the church, and they were saying... Oh, how wonderful and, and beautiful. But, you know, when you hold that tiny, tiny little baby in your arms, you just feel this overwhelming love. It's just unbelievable. And I was going to... I'm going to ask my uh, uh, son and my daughter-in-law to bring her along one day, not to boast and show off. Not much anyway. <laughs> But seriously, I want to hold that little child in my arms in front of you and see the love that I have for that little child. Because that's how your Father in heaven regards you. And so many Christians struggle to come to terms with the fact that they have a Father in heaven who holds us like we hold little babies in our arm and we are so helpless without him. We are just in his arms, in his plan, in his love. John 3.16 and this includes the rioters. This includes the people causing mayhem all around the world. John 3.16, For God so loved the world, not the elect, not the church, not only the Jewish people, God loved the whole world, that he gave his only son, that whomsoever should believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. He loves the whole world. We are prone to make judgments over people 
whether or not they deserve salvation or not because of their behaviour. Everyone should be lucky that we're not God. Because his understanding of grace and mercy and love is far beyond what we can understand. And that is why when John is saying in this particular verse, this is the message which we, the apostles, heard when we were walking with him in first century Israel for three and a half years, and we heard it from him, and we declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And verse 6, last week I, we had a, a screenshot of Gnosticism and everything that they believed, that Jesus wasn't really Jesus, that he was a mirage or an image or he wasn't really uh, divine or he wasn't really human. They preach everything that is contrary to the biblical image of Jesus. And verse 6, John is actually referring uh, to them in this. If we say that we have fellowship with him. Some of these Gnostics proclaim belief in Jesus, but their Jesus, not the Bible's Jesus. And is that not the same thing that's happening in the church worldwide today, where we get liberal, modern pastors denying the virgin birth, denying the sinless atoning life, denying the resurrection, and absolutely denying his soon return to this earth to bring in the kingdom. It's right throughout the modern, the modern church. I, I had coffee um, with one of the, the men in the church this week, and we were talking about church and, and things like that, and I said, how did you end up at Calvary Chapel, Perth? And they said, well, for years we've been looking around Perth for um, um, a church that would just teach the Bible, teach scriptures. And he said, the last one, and don't ask me who it is because I'm not going to tell you, but the last one, the last church we went to two years ago, and I'm not going to give you the suburb, the pastor stood up at the pulpit and said, I have no idea why we still have the Old Testament in the Bible. He said that from the pulpit. And he said, I only read the New Testament and I only actually read the words that are in red letters. I don't read anything else. And there was a large congregation there. And he said, I have searched the Old Testament and I can't find Jesus anywhere. How heartbreaking must that be for people who are seeking after truth and the word and biblical preaching and they turn up at a church like that in our city and they hear that spoken from the lectern. How heartbroken is God? How heartbroken is God indeed. And in verse 6 he says, if we say that we have fellowship with him and he's having a go at these Gnostics, and yet walk in darkness, then we lie and we do not practice the truth. And in John's letters, he always seems to use this word practice. It means that's your daily conduct, that's how you think, and that's what you speak. So if you are practicing darkness, that is pretending to believe in Jesus, but your entire lifestyle is, 
denies biblical exhortation to godly living, then John is saying to these people, you lie and you do not practice the truth. And in verse 7, he says this, but if we walk, if you and I walk in the light as he, Jesus, is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we walk in the light as he in the light. And do you know what? The fascinating thing about Corinthians is, and it's one of the reasons why I chose that, that particular uh, letter to study at home at the Bible study on Wednesday nights, is these people are not doing well as far as walking in the light is going. But you know what? They're born-again believers. But they're stumbling and they're failing in their witness to the people of Corinth. And when Paul and Aquila and Priscilla and Timothy and, and uh, Silas came together as a five-man group and won some of these people to Christ... When they were born again, because John, uh, sorry, Paul actually in the opening verses in chapter 1 of Corinthians saying that you are called by Jesus Christ, you are saints, and you've been sanctified, washed, and regenerated. So they are born again, but they are not living as if they are walking in the light. And when we study letters like that, when we study to the, to the people of Galatia and, and Colossae, it's not to condemn those churches, it's to look at us in modern 21st century um, Christianity and saying, then how well are we doing? Everything written beforehand was written for our admonition, for our learning. The Bible is not a historical study of people in other, in other generations. The Bible is there to, as a standard that we measure ourselves. We don't measure other people first. We measure ourselves, how we are walking with Jesus. And it's a daily thing. Sometimes it's an hourly thing. How are we walking with Jesus? Are we sticking to the biblical Jesus? Do we know the biblical Jesus? Or have we got some made-up um, um, avatar that someone has told us about from a, from a pulpit which does not preach the truth. And we don't know him, and we don't know his power, and we don't know his grace, and we don't know his forgiveness, and we don't know his salvation through what he did on the cross. And what we get involved in is social justice and doing good works. Well, you can't get to heaven by doing that. There's only one way that we get to heaven, and that is placing our faith and our trust and our belief in Jesus and what he achieved on that cross. That cross wasn't a, a, a death. It was a victory. It was a fit victory over the demons of darkness, over the power of darkness. And he is the light, and he shines like a light in this dark world at the moment, and tens of thousands of young Americans, it was wonderful to see, are saying, let us worship. We want to walk in the light of Jesus Christ. And, it, you know, it's been stirred up by a handful of pastors in America who have said, we will not close our doors. And who was that? Who's the mainstay? 
John MacArthur. And I tell you what, we had some disagreements some years ago over Calvinism. We can work through that. I've got no problems with that. But boy, I admire that man for his stand, his courage, and his integrity saying that church, fellowship, one with another is essential. In fact, it's the most essential thing in this society at the moment because when you turn on the TV, you have to turn it off. When you turn on the news, you have to turn it off. It's nothing but propaganda. It's fellowship one with another and in study of God's word and how it means and makes a difference to us walking in these dark times. And are we walking in the light? I pray that we are walking in the light. People are coming to Calvary Chapel, Perth, because they've seen us online, and they say, oh, gosh, he's got a Bible on the pulpit. Instead of the latest magazine from an agency extolling good works, Sue and I, some months ago, watched an online service, and it was an hour and seven minutes long. And it was all about everything they're doing in the community. And Jesus got mentioned for seven minutes at the end of the service. And not even from the Bible. You, you know, God says people perish for the lack of knowledge and the famine of the word in the land. And people are perishing at the moment, all around the world. Why? Because pastors won't pick this up and preach from it. And I don't know why not. What's the matter with the truth? It lifts us up. It exhorts us. You know, when you know, I said to Eric before, I said, you know, can we have five minutes of fellowship? And I knew it was going to be ten minutes. Because that's what we have been missing for so long. You know, I watched my 15-year-old grandson during the lockdown when they weren't even allowed to go to high school and he was getting depressed and he was putting on weight and, and he was just down. The lockdown finished, he went back to college, got to see all his friends and mates and all his football team um, um, members and the total change that came over that kid was just amazing to see. And the same thing has happened here. When we reopened, we were only allowed, what, five or six people in this thing. And five and six people rushed in, sat down, and then it's grown from them. And do you know what? When I watch from the front and I see your love and your desire to fellowship one with another, I know that the power of God is in meeting together studying the word, praise and worship, and fellowship. That's what keeps us going in these times. That's what keeps us sane in a dark world. Because let me tell you something right now. And I learned this when Sue and I were in Russia. And I've said to the congregation before, but I'll say it to the new people here today. We went to, I went to Russia twice on, on outreach missions. Sue went there four times. It's a very strange country. You can't wait to get there. As soon as you're in there, you can't wait to get out. And when you're back in Finland, you can't wait to get back in again. 
It is a strange place. Beautiful people. The Christians we met there were on fire for God. We had three young um, interpreters that were working with us in 1998. And you know what? They knew their Bible like a scholar. And they'd only had them for five years. They weren't allowed them before that. And when they hungered and thirsted for the word of God, when they finally got a Bible, they just got into it straight away. But you know, the interesting thing is we had a lovely Finnish man who takes Western Christians into that, into that dark, dark, talk about darkness, that dark nation that for 70 years as official government policy denied that there was a God, that man is our God, that when they got the light of the gospel, it was amazing. And you know what? Kari had to go to a town meeting near St. Petersburg with all of the officials to discuss this coming summer's program. And those camp that we, we go to, remember the old communist, I don't know if you know this, but there was, the old communist pioneer youth camps. And they used to, in the summer, take all of the kids out of the cities and put them in these indoctrination camps called the pioneer youth camps. When um, communism um, fell apart, they still kept sending kids out there just to get them out of the city. And so this wonderful man in 1994, uh, uh, Yuko in Finland, said, I wonder if we would allow, be allowed to take some Christian people into those camps and, and, and witness to the kids. So Yuko, because the Finnish people have a close relationship with the Russians, and especially in St. Petersburg, they were allowed to bring them in. And they behaved themselves and presented themselves and represented Jesus so well that the next year they wanted as many teams to come in. They sent one team one year and they wanted more teams and more teams to come every year since. So by 1998, there were teams from America and England and Europe and Australia going in there. And in planning for the next season, the, the communist police... Um, officer in charge of the city, the um, mayor and the, the council officials were all in this meeting with Kari. And the police officer, the commander of the police in that whole region, said to Kari, please bring as many Christian teams as you can into this country because we desperately need them because this is dark and we need light. He didn't say that, but that's what he was saying. This is a dark place. And he said, I'll tell you something. The change in the children that are in the camps when you bring your teams of Christians in there is phenomenal. And when they come back from the camps and go back to their families in the cities, they are affecting everyone else. But he said, I'll tell you something. Even when the children are still in the camps with your teams, the behaviour of the children in the nearby town who can't get to the camps, it changes. And they settle down and there's a peace. A peace comes over them. And he said, I don't understand it, but it's real. So when the light of the gospel, when Christian witness goes into a dark place, it spreads out everywhere. And I'll tell you right now, that's a spiritual truth. 
And right above this church right now, not only is God the Father, God the Son up there looking down and watching us right now, a lot of people don't get that. Because he's not away busy somewhere else. He's watching you and I now, fellowshipping together, coming together as a church. And what we don't understand is that there are angels up there watching us and there are from the other side. And you know what? When they look down at any fellowship that gathers and witnesses for Jesus Christ, they see a fire light burning in Canning Vale. And everywhere around Perth where the Bible is faithfully preached, there is a fire, there is a light, there is a passion, there is fellowship, and it spreads out into the community even if you can't see it. It has a definite impact on the society that we live in. And sometimes we think we're losing the battle. We are not. It's already won. It's already won. You know what? There are things happening behind the scenes that you will never hear on mainstream media. But Christians are reaching out to Christians in the darkest places in this world and sending them um, resources and Bibles and they are having hundreds and thousands. The churches we support in India, you should have seen the photographs they sent just this week about every, the young people coming and, and receiving a Bible and Pastor Devadas is there. And, he, and I said to him, he sent me a, a text on um, Friday and he said, please, sir, please, sir, thank you for your prayers because we had more people, young people accepting Jesus just yesterday. Everywhere we see the gospel having an impact on people in dark places. And he says in verse 8, this is another attack against the, the, the Gnostics. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. What is John saying here? Because these people believe that matter is bad and spirit is un, un, untouchable, that whatever they do in their body is not even sin. Why? Because Jesus, according to you, John, according to you, Paul, according to you, Peter, have told us that Jesus paid for every sin we have ever committed on the cross. There are consequences. There are consequences to sin, not only physically, emotionally, but in fellowship with God. Who here hasn't had a child that has misbehaved and you just have to remove them to their room for a while? I can honestly say, as a parent, I never laid a hand on my kids. I can honestly say that. I could never see the point. My dad never laid a hand on me. Why? Because he had the look. And you didn't want to get the look. And apparently, I had the look. But there was one occasion when my wife just had to, when I was up in the mines and she had a run-in with our son. And uh, we were at... Uh, the big church in Belcatter at that time, she was, she was going to do everything godly. But he was really naughty, so he was going to get the wooden spoon. 
But she said, no, I've got to calm down and do it in a godly manner. So she sent our son to his bedroom for a few minutes while she calmed down. And then she came in and she said, bend over, and she went sort of whack, whack, whack. And Sue walked out bawling her eyes out. And we didn't learn until years later when he was an adult and we were having a family dinner, he says, oh, by the way, Mum, you remember when um, you gave, came into the, the bedroom with the wooden spoon and you gave me a spanking? And, and Sue said, yes, it's the worst moment of my life. And he said, no, it was great. He said, you got me in there long enough and I put 10 pairs of underpants on <laughs> underneath. And he said, and I didn't feel a thing. <laughs> And sometimes we can even try that with God. But do you know what I mean? When, because we come to verse 9. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And do you know what? Sometimes, I mean, we've been looking after Christians now in a pastoral sense for 23 years. And some people just would rather hide their sin than confess their sin. And then they come to us and saying, you know, things are just going round and round and round and round in circles. And after a period of time, you just know that there's something that's bothering them, that's bugging them, that hasn't been dealt with. And in love and, and, and in you know, humility, you just ask them, is there something going on that, you know, that is bugging you? And often, not always, but often, they've said, well, yeah, I let someone down years ago or I did this or I did that. And I said, have you just taken it to Jesus? That's all you have to do. There is nothing that would ever shock Jesus. I'm serious. I've had people come and confess things to me as a, in a pastoral uh, situation that would turn your hair white. And I've said to them, the cross paid for everything. There is no conditions placed on God's love for you and for me. There is only one unpardonable sin and that is rejecting the witness of the Holy Spirit pointing you to Jesus. And if you say no, that can't be fixed. Everything else can be dealt with. And can I encourage you? In the silent quietness of your own self this week, and because you're Calvary Chapel Perthites, I know this doesn't apply to any of you, but if there's something that you need to do, usually it's in, in relationships, family relationships, that these things really happen. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What does that mean? Even if there's one thing that's bugging you and you've forgotten all the other minor things, if you bring that to Jesus and say, Lord, I place it at the foot of your cross, you paid for it. 2,000 years ago on that cross outside the city of Jerusalem, Lord, I repent of 
my motive for doing this or saying this or hurting someone in some way, please accept my repentance. It's genuine. It's in my heart. And you know what? He is faithful to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from everything that has hindered our, uh, our fellowship with uh, God, our, our Father. And you know what? We, we did this two weeks ago at Wednesday night. I brought up the issue of David and Bathsheba. And David did the wrong thing. He murdered Uriah by placing him at the front of the army. He committed immorality with Bathsheba. Then he lied about it and refused to acknowledge it. And it wasn't until a year later that Nathan had to go before him in the court and say, you're this wicked person that did this. And you know what? I just want to finish this off. I'll go to verse 10. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. If anyone here pretends that they're the perfect Christian, please come and see me and I'll get your autograph because I've never met one yet. And by the way, there's no perfect church anywhere because they're all made up of Christians. And we need to know that we are flawed human beings, but we have the grace and the forgiveness of God Almighty available to us simply by being honest with him. And what's the point of not being honest with him? He's omniscient. He already knows it. He's just waiting for you to bring it to him. And after a year, you can read Psalm 32, parts of Psalm 38, Psalm 39, the agony and the torment that David was going through after this incident with Bathsheba and Uriah. And he was in misery until Nathan pinged him in front of the whole court. And we're going to finish this off. Turn to Psalm 51. This is how you release yourself. Psalm 51, verses 1 to 11. It's not easy, it's not hard to do. Um, Christians, this is not hard to do. Verse 1. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Remember when I said God holds us like little children? If we need to do things, he still loves us. He does not and love us ever. Because of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned. You know, that's what I try and get Christians to understand, is that when you fall and you stumble, and we all do, the first target of your sinning is God himself. 
whoever it involves is secondary. And he says, against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother did conceive me. Behold, you desire truth. You desire truth in the inward parts and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. Purge me, Lord, with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. And this is the one that I love. Create in me a clean heart again, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. That's to be out of fellowship. And this is something that a born-again Christian can never say. And do not take your Holy Spirit from me. But an Old Testament believer can say that. We can't. But we can grieve him and we can quench him. And we have to be aware of that. And do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And do not cast me away from your presence. You know, one day, when we're in his presence, we'll finally understand the depth of love and grace and mercy and forgiveness that he has for us. Finally, when we stand before him, he's not some terrifying potentate sitting on a throne holding a trident. He's a father. He's a father that loves you. He's a father that's loved me. And in the same way that I love my own children, I'm pathetic with my children. They say I'm a control freak. I try and do everything for them. But now that I've got these beautiful grandchildren, it just doubles. Sue said to me the other day, what is it about grandparents and grandchildren? It's just amazing the love that bursts through you. But that's the, father that, that's the love that the Father has for you. And this is David crying out and making himself right with him. Do not ever, ever, ever think that you could ever do anything that God would not release you from. Seriously, don't ever believe that because it's not true. It's not what the Bible teaches. And when we walk in the light as he is in the light, our witness will shine to our family. And you know what? I know that it sometimes irritates people at family gatherings when you're the Christian and they're not. But one day you will have an impact on your family, on your friends, on your workmates. I have had testimonies given to me from people in this congregation over the last two weeks that they have had people come to Christ after years of antagonism. And that's what I say. Never give up. Never think that your witness has failed. It hasn't. It's building and it's building and it's building and it's building. And if... God forbid it takes the rapture of the church to wake some people up. At least they will wake up. 
but your prayers and your des- the desire of our hearts is that they would wake up now, not then. But that's in God's hands, not ours. We sow the seed, someone else waters, but it's God that gives the increase. And that releases us from any guilt, any pain, any heartache, because at the end of the day, it's God's business and all we are is just workers in his hands. So Father, we come before you this afternoon and it's just an amazing thing that we walk in the light, you've divided the light from the darkness. We are separate, Father, from this world. Ephesians 2 tells us that we're already seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus, Father. And that's our destiny, and you are guarding that for us, for when we get there. And if you are guarding it, Father, no one can take it from us. So, Father, as we come before you this afternoon, just make your presence known and felt and real with us this week. And give us the humble courage to keep witnessing to the people that we have been witnessing to, to our neighbours, to our friends, to our family, even through the hostility, Father. Just keep us humble and in your care, walking in the light and witnessing for you in Jesus. And we ask this now in the matchless, matchless name of Jesus. Amen.